Hello and welcome back to Right Now. I'm Stephen Kent. It's going to be a seriously hot summer, folks. And if you live in the northwestern United States, you're already hearing about the grim expectations of a brutal wildfire season. Temperatures in and around Portland topped 100 degrees this weekend, breaking all kinds of records and soared to nearly 116 degrees on Monday. Americans in the Northwest are buying air conditioning units, apparently, for the first time. Seriously, you can pretty much get by without it up there, historically anyways. Now, you've heard all of this before and for many years on end. New records being set on storm intensity, heat waves, cold snaps, and climate mayhem in general. And along with this, you get a narrative that only one side of the American political divide cares about the environment. I cannot speak for the motives of Republicans on Capitol Hill for the past two decades. Maybe they are bought off by big industry, or maybe they're just like their voters, which is to say that they're cautious. Because flipping the table on the way the world moves is a serious proposition. Hesitation is understandable. Solutions shouldn't be cooked up in a frenzy. Whereas Greta Thunberg and her followers want you to panic, like really, she said to. I want you to panic. You, you need to take a deep breath and think this through. To panic quite literally means to engage in wildly unthinking behavior. Why would anyone want that? The tone of the GOP has evolved over time on climate change. After a good two decades or more of denying it is happening, it does seem that they're now saying, yes, it's real, but there's not much we can do. That or it's actually China's fault or AOC's Green New Deal is just a socialist revolution disguised as a climate plan which is absolutely true, by the way. This week marked a significant inflection point in how the political right engages on climate. In the House, there is now a conservative climate caucus led by Utah's John Curtis. And last summer, House and Senate Republicans unveiled the Roosevelt Caucus for Environmental Policy. And this is good, because unless you want to be forced to ride e-bikes to work equipped with your very own copy of Mao's Little Red Book, hand-signed by Ilhan Omar, we have to have conservatives at the table on climate policy, or socialists are just going to set policy by default fault. End of story. Even when the civilized world does not end in 10 years like they've been saying it will. We're going to talk about climate today and about where the GOP is moving on environmentalism. But first, if you would, if you're watching us on YouTube, please hit subscribe. Join us. We have a new show every week and we would love for you to get it directly into your feed. If you're catching the podcast, leave us a review. Five stars would be nice. And follow us on social media at RightlyAJ. That's our handle on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, everywhere you can find us. Joining me today from Seattle is Benji Backer. He's the president of the American Conservation Coalition and a quickly rising star in Gen Z Republican politics for his environmental advocacy. Benji, welcome to the show, man. Hey, it's great to be here. And I, I do hate to be called a Gen Z Republican, but <laughs> I guess it's what I am. Zoomer scum. <laughs> it's nice to oh, have you. Oh, no. I, I hate to start with asking you how is the weather, but you are up in Seattle. Uh, you hanging in there because the news coverage has been like pretty dystopian so far. <clears throat> well, it, it honestly is pretty bad. Uh, I, uh, I've dealt with triple digit temperatures for much of my life, I've been in Arizona for part of my life and in Wisconsin. 
everyone has AC in those places, so it's not that big of a deal. In Washington, it's like a cultural thing where people just don't have AC because it hardly ever gets hot in the summer. It barely gets over 90 any days during the summer, let alone in June, uh, and let alone 110. And it's been really hot. No one's going out. It's, it, it feels kind of like uh, the beginning of quarantine all over again. Uh, and it's, it's pretty hot. That is just not fair after the year that we have had for that kind of thing to happen. And I guess related to what we're talking about here today, I really hate to be one of those people who looks at like weather events and then asks people like, can you comment on this and in terms of how it is evidence of climate change? Because not every weather event or bad week of heat immediately means like global warming is going to kill the world in 10 years. But what do you think about it? I mean, is this evidence of the climate change narrative and how should we think about things like this big heat wave? It's a really, really good question. I went around the country this spring to meet with climate scientists from top institutions uh, from across the globe who have been very uh, pragmatic in the way they've looked at it, not political at all. They're looking at it from strictly a scientific perspective. And I asked them that question without knowing that it would come to fruition uh, so quickly after my fact-finding mission. And what the, the, the fact of the matter is, weather is not climate. And Climate has an impact on weather, but weather is not climate. So when you see a severe weather event, you cannot blame it on climate change. It can be worse because of climate change, uh, but it is not happening because of climate change. So when there's a hurricane, that hurricane would have happened anyways. It might just be a little bit worse because of climate change. And that's something that I think a lot of people don't understand. Uh, same with wildfires and, and other things like that. Mm -hmm. So there's no scientific data to say that X extreme event happened because of climate change. Uh, that's weather. The trend over time of temperatures increasing, of storms getting worse, of wildfires getting worse, that trend is climate change. And that trend is heading in the wrong direction. And it's pretty hard for people to deny that that trend is existing. Yeah, I, mean, I was like just the other day, I was, um, I was I was listening to my, my weekly dose of the Ben Shapiro show, and he has this new series called Debunked. Um, and he did, mm -hmm. a, he did a debunked episode on climate change alarmism. And so I kind of like hopped into the episode thinking like, all right, Ben Shapiro is going to like dismantle uh, that climate change is real. But he actually didn't. He was just like, the climate is changing. It is getting hotter. But what do we do about it as a solution? And so it kind of like it really does seem like there is all of a sudden broad consensus. And I don't even know what changed because you remember the denialism days. Like, it's just like somewhere along the line in the past couple of years, it just went away with the exception of former President Trump. Look, I, I, I hate to toot our organization's own horn, but I think that's because of the work that we've done at ACC. Uh, I'm the president of the American Conservation Coalition. And when we started in 2017, there were two Republicans in Congress who believed in climate change, or at least talked about believing in climate change. Uh, of course, there were more who weren't talking about it. Now there are literally nearly 100 in the House and the Senate, and even more are voting for pro-climate policies, even if they don't talk about it in a pragmatic way. And then, of course, the general public is following that trajectory as well within conservative circles. There's been a huge shift, and I think it's because of a few reasons. One, the trend of climate change is much more obvious today uh, than it was 
previously uh, in a lot of people's lives. Farmers, ranchers, people who vote conservative are starting to see the effects. Second, we've been realizing that the Green New Deal and other socialist policies, to your point earlier, is cannot be the only alternative. Otherwise, we are going to get really bad impacts on our environment and our economy. And then the, the third reason is because conservatives have realized that they do want their own voice at the table, that we do have good ideas, that we do have a really good platform to stand on uh, to solve this problem, that we do care about the environment just as much as anyone else. So why not fight? Yeah, I want to I want to kind of unpack what some of those specific policy proposals are. And I think what you mentioned about like farmers and in, in particular, like being one of the driving voices and how the right has changed how they think about this is is really key. Could you tell me a little bit about you and your background? Like, what's the Benji Backer origin story for how you got off the sidelines and involved full time on this issue? And was it Republican first, environmentalist second, or the other way around? It's a really good question. So I've been active in politics since I was 10, which is something that is crazy to say. Uh, I was door knocking, making phone calls before my voice even changed. Uh, so it was it was a pretty interesting childhood that I had. Uh, and then I spoke at, C <laughs> spoke at CPAC when I was uh, 14 or 15 uh, about indoctrination in the classrooms, another very important topic, and uh, decided when I got to college, which I went to college at the University of Washington in Seattle, I went to college at the University of Washington in Seattle because I wanted to be somewhere where I could hike and ski. I moved from Wisconsin so I could be somewhere that I could hike and ski. And I realized that the conservative movement I was a part of didn't have a voice at the table on climate change or the environment. And I had been a lifelong environmentalist. Just like everyone, I have a story about why I care so much about the environment. I have a childhood memory that really comes to mind when I think about my connection with the environment. I think we all have that at some point in our lives. And I decided that I needed to marry my passion for the environment and mm -hmm. conservatism. And for most of my life, it was conservative first and environmentalist separate. And now it's environmental first and conservative second. Yeah, I've noticed uh, this, this trend, particularly um, particularly among like Gen Z and sort of late millennial conservatives. They they all are from the Western United States, Northwestern United States. Um, one of my friends, Nate Hotchman, out in Oregon, uh, really great conservative environmentalist writer. Uh, Hannah Downey, Kat Dwyer of the organization Perk, out in Montana, like environmental conservatism does live out west and that is sort of like where the intellectual tradition lies and it's really interesting to see it finally like break through in beltway circles because it's completely changing the way that the the right talks about climate exactly and those are some fantastic people you just mentioned some of my favorite people uh and look i mean Dan Evans, the governor of the state that I'm in right now, Washington, it's hard to believe that Washington had a Republican governor that actually won the city of Seattle, but it happened. Uh, he created the blueprint for the EPA, and he protected more land here than really any governor in history. Uh, he was a Republican. He still is a Republican. I know him uh, today very well. He's 95 and still cooking. But like, there's a legacy out here of conservative environmentalism. Uh, of and it's that skepticism of the federal government, right? Like, I think part of that tradition that you're talking about is like the, the public lands versus private lands thing. Like, who's going to control cattle grazing territory? Like, it's kind of an extension of that tradition, right? And it's sort of grown a little bit more into like the national parks debate. It, exactly, yeah. So it's kind of started around that national parks debate because out here, okay. that's such an important conversation. 
you have Nevada, which is mostly public lands, and people there are really constrained by the federal government owning so much land. Uh, but you also have people who live in these states who love the public land for recreational usage, hunters and, and anglers. And, How much of the uh, percentage so there, there is federally a, owned? I've, I've heard that statistic before, and it's, it's a huge number. <laughs> Oh yeah, I don't know the exact amount for the West specifically, yeah. but it it's it is it is staggering <laughs> how much is. Federal I just owned. remember being like blown away. I was like, that is way too much uh, for the federal government to own out in the Western region. The um, have you seen the Yale study that came out a couple of weeks ago, um, written primarily by Matthew Goldberg, I believe it was, on how. Uh, you can message to conservatives on matters of environmentalism and climate change more effectively. Are you familiar with the, the study I'm talking about? I'm not, but I'm very familiar with the Duke study that's very similar. So if you're more of a Yale guy, you know, Duke, <laughs> I'd never Duke consider Yale myself a fun. Yale guy. <laughs> How dare you? Uh, anyways, continue. What's, what was the Duke finding? <laughs> well, I'm not a Duke guy either. I, I think in <laughs> basketball, I'll cheer for anyone but Duke. But, uh, but there was this study about how to message climate change to uh, conservatives. And one of the problems is that conservatives are the most connected to their environment out of any group in this country. You think about who votes conservative. It's hunters, it's anglers, it's ranchers, it's farmers, it's people in rural areas living out in the forest. Those are the people who are voting conservative. They love their environment, mm -hmm. but they don't want some big top-down government policy to tell them to ride their bikes to work when they need a truck to carry their loaf from their house yeah. to their farm, right? Like that is a very anti-conservative message. And so instead of coming up with our own solutions, we've run the other way. But if you can message it in a way that involves those communities and actually builds up rural communities and builds up the farming and ranching community, which you can do and fight climate change and boost the economy at the same time, that is a winning message. But we just haven't done that until recently. Do you think the, the knee-jerk reaction of... The Republican Party, by and large, has been tied to what you mentioned for the longest time, like literally just like identity politics, like the people talking about environmentalism or people that don't look like, think like, dress like, uh, or talk like these kind of more rural, blue-collar conservatives that you're describing, because it really does seem to just be like an outgroup animosity sort of dynamic, where we agree on the, a lot of the same principles and a lot of the same values. It's just that the people who are pushing that conversation uh, were uh, uh, urban hippies. <laughs> <laughs> living in Brooklyn and well, DC. <laughs> there, yeah, there's, I, I live in Seattle and, and the Seattle environmentalist is Oof, frowned upon yeah. by everyone else in Washington state because yeah. Washington state's actually a very conservative state outside of, of Seattle. And, and the problem with the climate change politics is very evident here in the state that there's two types of climate activists uh, and, and we're trying to create a third, but there's two types right now. The, the first is kind of the, the privileged upper class, uh, you know, white person in a big city who tells you to, to change your life, but also maybe flies a private jet and you know, like Al Gore or Leonardo DiCaprio, or they have some fancy Tesla or whatever it is. Yeah, it's hard to identify with. And the second is kind of these young uh, alarmists in big cities who are protesting in the streets and are super angry and lumping every issue in with climate change. Those are right now really the two people that you see on TV and, and other news entities talking about climate change. 
Yeah. How would you connect with that if you're a working class person in the Midwest or or in the West, on the West Coast? Yeah, because like yeah. I think what you're talking so, about is like a political movement uh, driven by anger and fear and a desire for big systemic changes. Like like the environmental movement has been steeped in this stuff for the longest time, like going back to the 1960s. Like this is where the Sunrise Movement comes from, is like a much larger change to the way that America works uh, versus just making the environment cleaner. And like conservatives, and, and this kind of goes back to the Yale study and probably what was, was alluded to in the Duke thing you were mentioning too as well, is like they found that when you talk to Republican voters in more purple areas of Missouri as well as Georgia about things like preservation of the way of life, um, a protection of home, making sure that your livelihood is intact. Like these are the things that engaged those people on the issue of climate. But you just had to talk about like, what are we preserving rather than what are we trying to, I don't know, like reform or change. That's exactly right. You have to make it about people's backyards. You can't make it about something that is tens of thousands of miles away or, or so it feels. You know, if you're talking about polar bears in the Arctic, it's really hard to relate to that, even if you might care about polar bears not going extinct. I think we all would care about that. But at the end of the day, people care about putting food on their tables and, and feeding their families. They don't care about what's happening tens of, you know, tens of thousands of miles away. So, you know, that is that has been the big problem is that it hasn't been relatable, but when you can make it relatable, when you can make it about the farm that the person farms at, or you can make it about the uh, stream that the person fishes at, you know, when you make it about something that they can actually think about and actually see the, the difference being made at, you know, thinking about the temperature change over time in the community they're living in or the economic impact that climate change could have in their community, those types of things are better because just like everything in society, if you can make it tangible, you can make it uh, a problem in those communities, you can make it relatable. And and I think that that is what's been missing. And that's something that we do a little bit differently, too. Yeah, I, I think another way of describing what you're talking about, which is maybe more of a crude way to put it, is the language of self-interest. <laughs> you know, it's just speaking to people about like what is in your immediate interest, not like what is good for polar bears, but what is good for you right. and your family. And this organizes, I think, people into different political factions, whether or not they are able to and open about admitting self-interest. Like, I think people who believe in free market mechanisms to solutions, they just sort of believe that people don't necessarily always do the right thing, that people sort themselves in all sorts of natural ways, which you just can't control. And I've always found progressives to be just weirdly utopian. Like they have this really big, large mm -hmm. systemic critique of humankind and society. But for some reason, they think we can be reformed and molded into great people. And I've just never really believed that. <laughs> I think like we tend to watch out for number one and the trick is to make policy work so that self-interest works for everybody more broadly. That's exactly right. When you have a utopian outlook on, on this issue, nothing's ever good enough. And then you delay action because nothing's ever good enough and you're letting perfect be the enemy of the good. And in politics or in life, Nothing is perfect. Nothing is utopian. And we have to take steps in the right direction, just as we do in our day-to-day -day lives. So in policy, instead of talking about, oh, what is going to be this perfect utopian world that we could live in, which is not possible, we need to be talking about how can we help families put food on their tables easier 
and fight climate change at the same time. And if you can do that, then you have a lot of communities bought in. Maybe it's not the utopian future that people want, but it's a much better world than than what we left. Well, I mean, what were some of the estimations on what AOC's Green New Deal would do to household family incomes and livelihoods mm. over the course of like different years? I, I, I don't want to like throw a random number out there, but I, I believe it was that annual household incomes were going to take like a $20,000 per year hit if all of these things were put in motion. Because I think these people, and, and Greta Thunberg has sort of said it, like economic growth is sort of considered to be like the problem uh, that we are growing and mm -hmm. focusing on livelihoods rather than just always focusing on being net zero on carbon emissions. Well, yeah, I mean, look, a, a wealthy person can help fight climate change very easily because they have the money to do so. But when you're talking about rising energy bills and rising transportation costs and rising costs of production and manufacturing costs, that has an impact on literally everyone in a severe way, except for the highest 1% of society. And as the movement that previously was kind of the anti 1%, this is the most pro 1% type of policy you could think about this utopian kind of, oh, well, we'll just throw everything at the wall to solve this problem that isn't even as bad as they're saying it is. And we're going to we're going to do everything we can to fight it. But we're also going to put everyone in poverty. And that's not me saying some right wing talking point. That is literally the truth. You cannot go solar and wind only. You cannot go all electric. You can't do all these things overnight. And if you did, it would have severe Severe, severe consequences on literally everyone but the upper class. Why not? Why why can't you make that big fundamental change uh, and go over to those new taxes? Is it just that they're not ready and that they don't know how, like they can't hold the energy that they collect? Break that down for me. Yeah, I mean, the science is really clear on this. And this is something that this part of the climate movement doesn't use is they don't use the science. The science says the science. that we don't have all the technology <laughs> and all the innovation uh, to solve climate change. Solar and wind are not scalable right now. If you think about your local community and you turn on your light you know, every day, you don't really think about where your energy is coming from. But it's most of the time not coming from solar and wind because solar and wind don't have the capacity to power entire communities in the way that nuclear or, or hydro or natural gas or coal do. And I'm not endorsing, you know, coal. I'm just saying that there is a there is a severe baseload problem with solar and wind of powering communities because it's intermittent. It's only possible when the sun is shining for solar or when the wind is blowing for wind power. And until they can figure that out, there's no way to move forward on solar and wind, let alone having it be the only energy sources. And then you have, you know, electric vehicles only. Well, they're heavily subsidized and they're still more expensive than the internal combustion engine. Now, I'm a huge advocate for solar and wind. I'm a huge advocate for electric vehicles. But we have to be realistic about the timeline and we have to be realistic about the technology just not being there yet, not being cost effective yet. And without being realistic about it, we're putting a lot of people's lives at risk because we're not thinking about it in a way that is economical. And you have to make things economical to have good policy. Can you break down for me what the significance is of this new conservative climate caucus that was just formed here in the past couple of days here in Washington? It was, it was put together by a representative from uh, Utah. I'm blanking on the name. I said it earlier. 
uh, Braun? John Curtis. John Curtis, excuse me. Um, yeah, what's the significance of this caucus and what does a group like this actually mean for outcomes of legislation and how we engage on climate change? Because I, I don't know, it feels like there's like a new caucus forming every day and it's just a big PR stunt to me. Sure, yeah. So John Curtis is one of the greatest members on this issue uh, out of any side. He's a Republican from Utah, a coal district, uh, coal powered district. And he knows that he needs to fight climate change because he cares about his local community and he wants to be bought into the conversation. And over the past few months, we've helped him uh, alongside some other groups kind of craft this new movement in the United States House, uh, where there are literally over uh, a quarter of the House Republicans engaging with this caucus. Now, I don't know what, whether or not the caucus will result in legislation or not. Uh, it's too soon to tell on that. I, I'm hopeful that it will, and we're going to be there to support that. And uh, But at the end of the day, over a quarter of House Republicans within a week standing up and saying, yes, I care about climate change and I want to fight it as a conservative is a huge deal. It's a huge deal because it means that we will be putting together policies. There's actually a uh, package that Kevin McCarthy, uh, the House Republican minority leader, put together of climate policies that are immensely bipartisan. Uh, and they have uh, a lot of potential impact on American-made technology, nuclear, uh, natural solutions, which is kind Let's of focus the on like carbon capture, part right? Like the Kevin McCarthy package bills. Uh, Club for Growth didn't like that. Uh, I remember when that, that mm. policy suite came out, it, it definitely caught some flack from, I, I think, like the predictable characters uh, in Republican politics in terms of uh, associations and trade interests. Why is that? I mean, what was, what was so objectionable about that to establishment groups? Yeah, I mean, there are very few groups that have been speaking out against conservative climate action, but those who have been, I think, are, are kind of, you know, those organizations are dying because of their, their take on climate change of kind of being decades in the past, and they're kind of going out with a final punch. You know, you think about the Heartland Institute <laughs> uh, Club for Growth, and they're just, they're, they're desperate. They, they know they're on the wrong side of history, and they, they don't know what to do about it. Oh, you got to throw the wrong side of history, Barb. <laughs> no, I mean, like, they, well, the, they the, are, kids, you know, the kids the do not is, like it. Yeah. The reality is, like, Climate change is a problem, and we can talk about how severe it is or not, but it is a problem, and, and the United States is falling behind China uh, in clean energy development, uh, even though China's ramping up their emissions. And we have a severe problem on our hands, not only with the environmental side of climate change, but with the economic side of it. And the United States, if we continue to fall behind, is on the wrong side of history because we're hurting our environment and we're hurting our economy. And these organizations that have been standing against climate action have largely been uh, funded by uh, interests that are not good. And that has misled the public to believe that that is the way that we should be going. And now the public is, is changing course and the elected officials are changing course. And those organizations are staying in their lanes, which is predictable, but unfortunate. What's the difference functionally between the Conservative Climate Caucus and I mentioned like the Roosevelt Caucus that was formed last year, mm. I believe, and that was a, a, a House and Senate cooperation. Do, are these groups different in nature? Are they standing for different things? Um, and do they have disagreements that are getting sorted out? 
Very interestingly, they have different lanes. Uh, the Roosevelt Conservation Caucus is very focused on conservation-only work. So what I mean by that is national parks, okay. hunting and fishing, wildlife conservation and preservation. And then the Climate Caucus is just focused on climate. And I think what's really cool about that is that there's a lane for everyone to be involved if they care about the environment. And I think that that's, I mean, the reality is there's more environmental issues than just climate change. I'm a big advocate for national parks. I'm a big advocate for wildlife conservation. Our organization works on those issues as well. We oftentimes forget about those when we're so caught up in climate change. And I think that it's really important for those two issues to be separate, but also a lot of the people who work on both of those issues uh, and are, are in both of those caucuses can overlap because those policies do intertwine a lot. So I think it's a really cool dynamic, and that's what the difference is. Yeah, and that definitely speaks to my sensibilities on this because one of my, I don't know, one of the ways I try to order my life is like, what do I have control over and what do I just really not? Climate to me feels like a thing I, I, I just like as an individual, there's nothing I can really do. Like, I feel like all of mm. the things that are about about, like moral, like virtue signaling kind of actions you can do, like what kind of car you're going to drive. Like you make yourself feel better, but like, who are you kidding? It depends like what we're doing as a whole. It's that Roosevelt caucus attitude about like, we can control certain things. Like there are certain policies of how we take care of our lands, how we manage animal and wildlife populations that are things that we can do. And I, that's what I am drawn towards. And the Roosevelt Thing altogether seems to be having a huge moment. Like Teddy Roosevelt is like skyrocketed in prominence again in, in Republican politics. It's kind of weird. Well, first of all, Teddy Roosevelt is amazing, and <laughs> I'm learning about that shadow, more and more now. Yeah, <laughs> there, there is a there is a Teddy Roosevelt picture right behind my head. Uh, I I am a huge believer that individual action on these issues makes a huge difference, and that the that the environmental movement making you feel like these issues are too far away is part of the problem. Because just like voting, each one of our decisions makes a difference in the larger scheme of things. I have unsweetened iced tea right here that is made and brewed every morning. And I don't use plastic to, uh, to, to drink that iced tea every day. And that, although it's just one decision to not go to Starbucks and, and do that sort of thing every day, it does make a difference because if you have five friends who do that and then 10 friends who do that, it starts to make a huge difference. So I think we need to start putting ourselves back into these conversations. It doesn't mean you have to dramatically change your life to help the environment, but do what you can do as an individual to make a difference on environmental issues. And it does add up. So if, you know, being a uh, an electric car driver is your way of doing it or bringing a plastic uh, reusable water bottle to work every day uh, is, is your way. Like it, it all makes up a difference. And I think we need to put ourselves back into these conversations instead of feeling like we can't do anything about it because we can and behavioral changes and cultural changes matter. I don't know. I mean, what you're describing, like, I, I get that. And, and I feel, I feel compelled by what you're saying, but like so much of like environmental impact. And, and I think a lot of this is driven by emissions. Like a lot of the conversation, particularly by sure. the left is all about emissions. And that's part of what feels defeating about it because it's adding and subtracting. It's like, well, am I going to drive to work? Am I going to carpool? Am I going to change the kind of car I have? Oh, but by the way, it's like my mediating habit is also contributing to this thing. So it's just like, no matter what you do to subtract, you're going to add in another way, unless you're one of these like hyper purists about emissions output. There's no way. It doesn't and that's why we need, that is why 
that is why we're trying to craft a new environmental movement because that's not true. You know, every every impact that you can make in a positive way for your for the environment and your own personal life matters. And it doesn't mean that the other things that you do that are quote unquote environmentally poor are yeah. are are bad. Like I still eat meat. And I'm an environmentalist. I, I run a climate change focused organization. I still eat meat because I'm just not willing to give that up. <clears throat> but I am willing to give up other things. <clears throat> and that's okay. You, there's different trade offs. And it doesn't mean I'm giving up things. It just means that I'm doing things maybe in a different way. But to your point, the individual stuff matters, but it is a, a, a societal shift that has to happen, which includes individuals. And it's also a policy conversation that needs to be having solutions at all levels. And I think that that's where the left is so wrong is it's talking about federal government and international uh, solutions only. Whereas our organization and, and, and our movement is talking about, okay, this is a complex problem that has impacts in different areas of society. And we need local solutions. We need personal decision-making changes. We need state government solutions, federal government solutions. We need market changes, uh, capitalist uh, technology innovation. Like We need all those things. And if we don't, we won't solve these issues because it is so complex. Environmental issues are so complex that you need the biggest swath of solutions imaginable if you have any chance at solving it. Yeah, I mean, just the other day in D.C., I, I suppose they're still still flying out of the area now. Uh, but the Sunrise Movement was here in Washington yesterday, mm -hmm. shutting down most of the area around the White House, doing some big march, uh, pushing for a what was it called, like a CCC type of organization? Mm -hmm. What is that? What does that stand for again? Like the conservative, not the conservative, the con. Uh, the Civilian, Civilian Climate, Climate Corps. <laughs> yeah, the Civilian Climate Corps to be included in the infrastructure package um, by Joe Biden. Uh, what did you make of that march? Uh, you have any critique of the Sunrise Movement's uh, big demonstration yesterday? Look, demonstrations create some really cool social media coverage, but they don't do anything to further political dialogue if you don't have an actual solution that you're fighting for. And that's what these protest climate movements done for decades. You can stand in the streets for hours or days. You can glue yourselves to the wall of someone's congressional building. But if you don't actually have a solution that can be feasible, then what are you doing? What is the point? You are just dividing and, and making it harder to move forward. So uh, Sunrise Movement, which is kind of the youth movement behind the Green New Deal, can say some really sizzly statements, but they are hurting the environmental movement and making climate change worse by making it harder for people to be part of the conversation. And I actually yeah. believe that the Sunrise Movement is making this conversation worse. Yeah, I mean, half of their social media presence yesterday in Washington, D.C. was about their different uh, uh, climate beliefs, but then also animosity towards police. <laughs> well, like, it was like half of their social media campaign yesterday because all of those left movements fold into each other. They're all the same thing. Right. Uh, and it's like, that's why it's just like, it's this weird, creepy religion, not like actually part of a suite of policy solutions, because they had nothing to say about the Growing Climate Solutions Act pushed by this new conservative no. climate caucus. Like they don't have any commentary on it, because they probably don't even know that it exists. <laughs> well, they, they said that they were opposing it because it wasn't good enough. And the first climate bill to pass the Senate uh, this year was a Republican-led bill by an Indiana senator who had 92% of his colleagues voting in favor of a climate bill. And if you do the math, 92% of his colleagues includes a whole 
heck of a lot of Republicans who haven't been a part of this conversation for a while. That, my friends, is progress. Protesting in the streets about something that you've been protesting for 20 years and haven't made progress on is the opposite of progress. And so they're, they're taking the progress out of progressive. I mean, there's no, there's no progress in this movement uh, that they're leading. And they don't, even, they don't even address the elephant in the room, which is that there are bipartisan, common sense climate policies they just shy away from it because it's like not good enough what, or something. Um, what does the Growing Climate Solutions Act functionally do? The the one thing that I I'd, I'd seen about it was that it was very driven by sort of like credits for agriculture and farmers to actually change some of the technologies that they use, like actually tweaking different behaviors and making it profitable or you know offering incentives for them to actually do that. Yeah, basically, the the Growing Climate Solutions Act, which is now in the U.S. House, uh, and then hopefully will be signed by the president if it passes, will basically create a carbon market for reducing emissions on farming land and agricultural land. And it really incentivizes the new technology in, in the farming community because you, you are given an incentive and a credit if you reduce emissions. And so instead of making reducing emissions harder on farmers, you're actually making reducing emissions profitable for farmers, which is why it's so popular because rural America is struggling uh, with finance, struggling financially, especially the farming community. And if you make it profitable to fight climate change, which is what this is trying to do, you're helping farmers and you're also helping climate and, you know, natural uh, cause, natural things like wetlands and and farming and agriculture that all amounts to a severe chunk of of carbon emissions that kind of get exposed from those practices but if you can sequester carbon which means basically capture the carbon in the agricultural uh, facilities, then you're making a huge dent on carbon emissions, which is what this is trying to get to. What do you think makes for good foundations for climate policy? Is it the, I, I think like the left, like they tend to like look at like, you know, by year 2050, we want to have like net zero carbon emissions. And like, that's the big goal. And then it's like, we need to do whatever, whatever needs to be done to reach that goal by 2050 or 2040. Whereas like conservatives, and I think by their nature, like they tend to be tinkerers, you know, like what you're talking about, like doing little small things here and there, offering incentive programs and tax credits and all that kind of stuff. And it just like, it, again, it, like it all breaks down to like, are you a flip the table kind of person or are you a minor changes one bit at a time sort of person? And which do you prefer? Because I sense both, both things are, are present in you and the way that you think about climate <clears throat> solutions. Yeah, look, as a as a Gen Z Republican, as you uh, so eloquently put me as at the beginning is, uh, you know, I, I do have severe uh, worry about what we don't do on climate change and what effects that could have. I know that the science says we need to be net zero by 2050 if we if we don't want to see the worsening effects of climate change in a very severe way. What the left has been saying now is like AOC has been talking about like net zero by 2030 and Biden says, I think, 80% by 2030 um, of carbon emissions reduced. Some of those things are just not feasible, and they really would have a negative impact. But net zero by 2050 is very feasible, and is not something that we would need to really dramatically shift society about. And I think it's really important for conservatives to understand that the science isn't as doomsday as what we hear all the time, and that like the net zero by 2050 is actually very possible with the way carbon emissions are dropping in this country and with the way technology is working. So to answer your question, I think that we need to look at technology 
innovation and markets first. If a climate policy doesn't enhance technology or innovation or make it a more competitive marketplace to fight climate change, then there's no point. Benji, and what are the technologies that are missing? Rely on regulation. What are the what are the technologies that need to be developed, brought to the table? Something that like we're just not there yet, or that nobody has even really started serious work on that we need to employ to actually hit the goal that you're talking about. Number one is nuclear energy, and that's something that conservatives can own. Nuclear energy is the safest and most efficient form of energy out there, and it's the most carbon-free energy outside of offshore wind. That's the only more carbon-free uh, energy uh, than nuclear energy. So nuclear energy right now is too expensive to be marketable, but that is changing with technology and innovation in the private sector as well as in our uh, Department of Energy labs across the country. Carbon capture is a very important part because if we're going to continue using fossil fuels, which is going to be the case for the next few decades, we're going to need to figure out a way to capture that carbon and either store it somewhere or uh, create new products with it. And then I think agriculture is the next. You know, there's a lot of different needs from the agricultural sector uh, in terms of helping them fight climate change. So this carbon market and and carbon uh, credit investment, that's a great start. We need to make it easier on farmers and agriculture uh, industries to fight climate change. And then electric vehicle batteries, uh, solar and wind uh, battery technology to store the power uh, when when it happens throughout the day. Those are also very important as we look towards a carbon-free future. <laughs> the uh, the batteries, and this is just coming from me, like somebody who does not spend the kind of time you do looking at science and things on environmental policy. It's like I just always go back to like we can't make batteries that like last as long as that we need to. I've just always been shocked by that. That battery technology is not where we need it to. That seems so simple. We've been to Mars at this point, uh, but yet we don't have batteries for everybody's but cars. But my iPhone lasts like. Three minutes on, uh, without a without a charger, and and I have to plug in my computer to talk to you because I'm worried it's going to die. Yeah, no, I mean it's it just sort of it just also always sort of jars me about the things that we're just not there yet on. And actually, I wanted to ask you one more technical question because because you're my you're my only friend now who can help me uh, understand this. When people say carbon <laughs> capture. What is carbon yeah. capture? Is it is it a device like a filter that goes on different technologies to literally capture those chemicals? And it's small. Like what is what does that even mean? Yeah, so it comes in a lot of different forms, but a lot of it is a filter that goes basically up into either the atmosphere towards the carbon that's already there, or it goes right at the top of like a uh, carbon like a carbon intensive facility, like a, a yeah. coal or a fossil fuel plant. Um, other fossil fuel plant and captures it. And then right now what it can do, it's really expensive to do this now, but maybe it will become cheaper because it's a new technology is you can create new products with that carbon um, and, and, or put it back into the ground where it came from. Uh, And so it really just depends. There's a lot of different technologies out there, uh, but a lot of them are filters basically creating a, a way to put that carbon in a, in a, in a small place and, put it somewhere well what's next for pretty cool yeah no that sounds really cool what's uh what's next for the american conservation uh coalition what uh what's your next big push that you're going to make uh round us out with what you're aiming for this year 
Well, we're aiming for more bipartisan policies on climate to be passed that are led by conservatives and, and done in a very conservative way economically. I think you're going to see that. The only climate policies, and I'll, and I'll, and I'll say this, the only climate policies that have a shot at passing uh, this Congress are the ones led by conservatives, which is pretty cool. Uh, so we're hoping to continue doing that uh, the rest of this year. We're hoping to grow our membership base. Uh, we're, we're aiming to be kind of the right of center environmental organization from a grassroots perspective, from a, um, you know, political movement perspective. So we're hoping to grow our grassroots base pretty substantially. And then in the fall, you're going to see us, uh, really lean into some areas that conservatives can own. Uh, there, I, I've talked about a few of them on this uh, interview, but there's a few areas that conservatives can own, and we're going to launch some pretty big campaigns uh, and, and political movements around those issues because we need conservatives to feel like this is our issue. It's time for us to take the offensive. We cannot continue to run the other way. It is our time to fight for our environment, fight for our economy at the same time. And our movement's going to be there to, to be there every step of the way. Our time is now. Benji Backer, thank you. All right, and thanks for staying with us. We're still here with Benji Backer, and we like to end every single episode with a little bit of good news from the world. Um, so we always like to do something personal, headlines, whatever has got you just happy about being on this earth. Uh, Benji, why don't you start us off? Uh, what's, uh, what's going on positive in your world? All right. Well, there's a lot going on that's positive. So I'm going to pick two really short things. The first is that my sister, who uh, lost her job at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, just got a new job uh, in a perfect role for her in the city that she wants to live in. That's and it's been a very exciting couple of weeks for my family uh, in that way. She's working for Life is Good, which is very exciting. And then... Um, the Bucks are going to win the NBA championship, which is very, very <laughs> exciting. I, I'm predicting it because I need them to win for my own sanity, and and I think that they're going to do it. I, I believe, I believe, I will be rooting for the Bucks just for you as someone who is uh, thank you 100 indifferent. So go Bucks! Um, so go Bucks! For, <laughs> for me. Uh, I am always following news, and not because I have penny stocks in Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat, but I'm always following the plant-grown meat technology. I think it's super cool. I, I am one of those people who I just think it is an element of the future that we need to keep pursuing to curb animal cruelty where we can. And I say this as a person who will never stop eating real meat. Uh, but in Israel, they just cut the tape this week on a new state-of-the-art facility for lab-grown meat. Uh, uh, it's future meat technologies, and they call this cultured meat, meaning it either comes from like plants or it is actually brought from the stem cells of animals and they grow chicken, pork, and beef. And I mean, this used to be $300,000 a pop to make just like 10 years ago, mm. and now they can do it for $350, something like that. It's just incredible. Wow. The way technology advances over time and becomes affordable just like that. You just never know. And like, that's the kind of stuff that can save the world. Absolutely. And uh, we have an opportunity to diversify our diets and ch test out these new meat substitutes. And I, I'm a huge fan, too. And I eat a lot of meat and I eat a lot of meat substitutes. And it's pretty cool to see that technology go forward because it also can make it easier on food production. It's, it's pretty awesome. Have you actually come to a conclusion on which one is better between Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods? Because I have formed an opinion and I'm on team Beyond Meat. Uh, those products are actually, I think, just barely better. 
I'm I'm team barely barely better impossible. <laughs> All right, fair enough. We'll uh, we'll duke it out one day. With, so, uh, <laughs> so we're gonna be on different sides of the aisle on this one. We will stay there, sir. We will stay there. Uh, Benji, thanks for joining <laughs> us today. It was really nice to meet you and have you on the show. Absolutely. Want to be back. And thanks so much for having me. All right. And that's it for this week on Right Now. If you have not already, hit that subscribe button. Join us every week. We got new episodes on Thursday. We would love to have you be part of the Rightly and Right Now with Stephen Kent family. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at RightlyAJ. And remember, always ask why, stay out of line, and be a bug in the system. See you next week.